Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, we are finally, after a couple of years, coming near to the end of our study through the gospel according to Luke. And this morning we are going to be looking at the account of the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 23, I'll begin reading in verse 44, and I'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 56. This is the word of God. It is inerrant and it is life-giving. Please give it your full attention. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Several years ago, <clears throat> one of my nephews retired from serving as a policeman in the state police force, and he took a job, a retirement job, <clears throat> as working as a policeman for a school district. At the time, I thought, wow, what a safe and cushy job for a policeman to work as a policeman for a public school. Since then, as we know, there have been many, <clears throat> many mass shootings in schools in our country. And so I pray for his safety in what is proving now to be a more dangerous job. The mass shooting in a school that we saw this past week hit us close to home here at Oakwood. The Covenant School in Nashville, where the shootings took place, is a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church, a sister PCA church there in Nashville. The victims were three adult staff members and three third graders, one of them the senior pastor's daughter, a little girl named Hallie. How dark has a society become 
when we have to lock the doors on our schools and put armed guards around the school to keep someone from shooting children. We struggle, even people of faith struggle when stuff like this happens. How do you process this with your faith? Why, God, why do you let this happen? I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit inspired a book of songs and prayers and arranged for that book of songs and prayers to be placed in the very center of Scripture to tell us it's okay to come to your God at times like that, with questions like that. It's not a sin to come to God and say, why? To express your doubts, to express your questions, he invites that in his word. Psalm 10 says, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13 says, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then, of course, there's the psalm that Jesus quoted as he suffered on the cross, Psalm 22, where he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These times of darkness and tragedy, senseless tragedy, these times test our faith. They test our faith like the fires that Peter wrote about, the fires that refine and purify our faith, strengthen our faith, like fire refines gold. We've been looking at the trials, the beatings, the tortures, the sufferings of Christ as he goes to Calvary to be nailed on the cross. We've been looking at the reactions of his followers among others, who witness those dark events. I'm sure that his followers in those days were asking those same questions. Why, God? Why? They had entrusted their whole lives to Jesus Christ as God's promised Messiah, as his coming and eternal king. How could this happen? Why would God let this happen? We have the advantage of the rest of the New Testament to explain why it had to happen. But in those days, that day particularly, what we call Good Friday, as Christ suffered and as he died, you can only imagine the deep doubts and questions that his followers went through. I'm so thankful we have the writings of Paul, that we have the book of Romans, the book of Galatians. I'm glad that we have the book of Hebrews, which in detail explains why Christ had to suffer and die as he did. I'm so thankful we have the Bible because the Bible, from beginning to end, that's really what it's about, is why did Jesus have to come and die the way he did? We saw last week, as we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, we saw last week that he wasn't really interested in describing the details, the things we are really curious about. What did, what did it mean to be crucified? In what ways was Jesus tortured? 
Luke doesn't dwell on the details, doesn't even describe the things that we would be most curious about when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ. We noticed what he focuses on is the responses of the eyewitnesses of these events. The women who watched him drag his cross to the hill of Calvary, who mourned and lamented. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, the thieves who were crucified on the crosses next to him. We see in today's passage, the one we just read, that Luke also describes the reaction of the Roman centurion, one of those Roman soldiers, the centurion, the leader of the, of the ones who put him on the cross, how he stood at the foot of the cross as he watched Jesus die the way he died. He responds, according to Luke, certainly this man was innocent. Actually, he said something a little more than that, significantly more than that. In the original, literally what he said was, certainly this man was righteous. Not just innocent of the crimes he was accused of, but certainly this man was righteous. We know that it was some level of primitive faith that motivated him to say this because of other things. Luke tells us that he praised God as he made this declaration, even though he just witnessed Jesus breathing his last and dying. Matthew and Mark tell us that he also said, truly, this was the Son of God. By showing us how these witnesses reacted to what they saw the day Jesus died, Luke is pointing us to the meaning and purpose of his suffering. And today we're going to look at three other things, not the eyewitnesses per se. We're going to look at three events that happened as he breathed his last and as he died that will point us to what the rest of the scriptures tell us about the meaning and purpose of that death. The first two events I'm going to talk about are miraculous signs, signs and wonders. God communicates to us through two supernatural events. I want you to point out to you that as you look at how signs and wonders, miracles, where God intervenes in the natural operations of things to do something unnatural, to do something supernatural, he tends to do it during times when he is giving revelation of his, to his people, particularly revelation about the great events of the history of redemption. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is the history of redemption. And you'll notice that at times when God is doing something of greatest significance to bring about the saving of his people, that he not only sends messengers to give us revelation, but he intends to send with those messengers signs and wonders so that we might know that what they're revealing to us is God's truth. The plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea as the Israelites escaped Egypt, the thunders and lightning and earthquakes on Mount Sinai when the law was given through Moses, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha and other prophets, and then the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. God is free to do miracles and supernatural things anytime he wants, but we know from Scripture that it's not normal 
to expect signs and wonders in the life of the church, of the life of God's people. They're extraordinary because they tend to be associated with extraordinary events when God is doing something great to save his people. The first sign that Luke describes here, the first wonder that he, is, that he describes, must have been terrifying when it happened throughout that region. It's the darkness that Luke describes. He says, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. Sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's the way the Jews reckon time. Translate that into our watches, our iPhones. It's noon to three o'clock. That's the time in which there was this intense supernatural darkness that came over the land. Now, again, we want to be curious. How? You know, how did God do this? How did he act in a way that is contrary to the laws of physics and science? Well, Luke doesn't try to explain it. Doesn't even try to interpret it here. He says simply, the sun's light failed. That word failed in the original Greek is the word that we get the English word eclipse from. So you say, okay, well, he's saying, well, there was an eclipse, that the, the moon blocked the sun and that caused the darkness. No, that can't be true because two reasons. One, Passover always happened during the full moon. That's how you knew when Passover was. It happened always during a full moon. You can't have a full moon and an eclipse at the same time. But secondly, eclipses don't last three hours. They last a few minutes. My point is, this was a supernatural act of God to bring about a, an intense darkness upon the land to communicate a message. Three days. You know, people always want to come up with some natural explanation of these things. Three days there was pitch darkness in Egypt when God brought about the ninth plague upon the Egyptians. Three days of pitch darkness. In the days of Joshua, during his battle with the Amorites, God stopped the sun for a whole day. I'm not going to try to explain that. In the days of Hezekiah, God provided a sign by having the shadow go backwards ten steps. A supernatural act. I don't know about you, but I believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence. Is anything too hard for God? He brought about an intense darkness upon the land. Phil Riken, in his sermon on this passage, he said, there, this was a literal darkness with a symbolic meaning. And scripture tells us throughout what the meaning of darkness is in its spiritual symbolic message. Darkness represents the lies of the evil one. Darkness represents wickedness. Darkness represents ignorance. Darkness represents sin. And foremost, darkness represents the judgment of God against all these things. The prophet Joel in chapter 2 gives a familiar prophecy. He says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There's an interesting prophecy in Amos, Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. 
This actually was a prophecy of the coming judgment upon Israel. But it also points to these events at the crucifixion. Listen to the language. It says, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it, he goes on to say a verse later, I will make it like the morning for an only son. Jesus, when he was talking about the events that to, to occur when he comes back in judgment, he said this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And then, of course, in Revelation, speaking about the signs that will accompany the, the second coming of our Lord, it says, and when he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The darkness, the intense supernatural darkness was a sign of God's judgment. Judgment upon Israel? That's certainly possible. They had rejected the Messiah, the very Son of God. And instead of bowing and eating, worship and serve him, they crucified him. So certainly that darkness could be a symbol of God's judgment upon Israel. But I think more to the point, it was a symbol of God's judgment upon his own son. This darkness came upon the earth at the very same time that Jesus was bearing the penalty that your sins deserved and my sins deserved. He bore the judgment of God upon the cross. It's a visual representation of the hell that Jesus endured that you and I deserve. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of God's righteous, holy wrath and judgment was being poured out upon him in those moments. He was offering up his life as the promised perfect sacrifice as he died in our place, endured hell in our place, drank the cup of God's judgment to the very last drop in our place. That darkness was the darkness that we deserve all eternity. And he took it upon himself willingly because he loved us. We may not know the why behind our suffering, behind the senseless tragedies of life. We may not know the why, but that darkness over Jesus communicates to us that if we suffer, it's never because God is angry with us. It's never because he is punishing us. Because Jesus took that away. He bore the wrath of God. He bore the punishment that our sins deserve at the cross. That's what that darkness means. Our darkness, my darkness, your darkness, the darkness we deserve for all eternity is gone because it was satisfied in Jesus. The second sign and wonder that Luke mentions briefly and very briefly is the curtain that was torn. Verse 45 he says that as Jesus breathed his last, as he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now again, we want to know how, why. You know, give me the details, Luke, and he doesn't at all because the point isn't in the details. The point is in the meaning and the purpose behind it. 
This curtain was a huge, heavy, separating entity in the middle of the sanctuary of the temple. It separated the holy place where the priests did their work, their normal work in the, during the day. It separated the holy place from the, the part that was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. It, was, it represented the presence of God among his people. Estimates of its size vary a lot. I tried this week to get some kind of agreement on how big this curtain was. We know it was very big. We just, I couldn't find experts that could agree on how big it was. But it was probably at least 30 feet by 30 feet. 30 feet high, 30 feet wide. And I've heard estimates anywhere from one inch thick to four inches thick. It was heavy, huge, it was heavy. And it separated the normal operations of the priests away from the presence of God. Only one priest, the high priest, could enter behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies very briefly, one time every year, in order to take the blood of atonement, the blood of the Day of Atonement, to put it on the, to sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the throne of God, to show that people were putting their hope in a coming sacrifice to pay for their sins. That curtain that blocked the way between the priests, let alone the people of Israel, to come into the presence of God was a reminder of what Isaiah wrote in chapter 59 when he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Without the blood of atonement, God had his back turned to his people. A holy God must punish sin. Blood of atonement is the only way that we can be accepted into his presence. But as the book of Hebrews tells us, there were many priests and many sacrifices which only showed that the sacrifice that truly atoned for sin had not yet come. Luke doesn't mention one interesting fact that Matthew and Mark in their gospels, do, they do tell us that this curtain, when it was torn completely in two, it was torn from the top to the bottom. That's one way which God confirmed this was a supernatural act. Only God could separate that curtain, tear that curtain in two from the top to the bottom. You can imagine how terrified the priests, there would be priests, at that time of day there would have been priests working in the holy place before that curtain they watched it supernaturally rip in half and expose the Ark of the Covenant. You can imagine, they thought they must be about to be struck dead any moment. No human being could have that sight, have that exposure to the presence of God. I don't know what happened. Luke doesn't tell us. But it is interesting. Luke tell, does tell us later in Acts chapter 6, after the gospel begins to go out and spread to the nations, Luke tells us that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Maybe many of those who witnessed what happened in the temple that day. The meaning of that sign, there doesn't need to be any 
speculation or doubt about what that sign meant, the ripping of the curtain from top to bottom, because the book of Hebrews does spell it out for us as clearly as possible. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Christ's flesh was torn on the cross so that we could have free access to the presence of God because our sins were paid for. Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. The tearing of his body is the means by which he provided free access to God the Father. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. How does this apply to our why questions when we face suffering and trials and tragedies? We may not know the why behind our suffering, but that torn curtain assures us that we can run to the Father with any questions that we have without any hesitation, knowing that he loves us as a father and accepts us freely and unconditionally because of what Jesus did for us. The next event that points to the meaning of Christ's death is the burial that Luke describes in verses 50 through 53. We may not talk about it much, but the burial is crucial to the gospel. It's essential. Paul lists it as one of the essential truths, historical truths, when he describes the gospel. A lot of questions out there, even in churches, about what is the gospel? The gospel isn't about your need. The gospel isn't about your response. The gospel is about what God has done. And that is described for us in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he goes on. The burial was important and essential to the gospel message. We acknowledge that every time we recite together the Apostles' Creed. It says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Because his burial confirms that his death was complete. Jesus didn't just endure the moment of death. He entered into the grave. Sheol of the Old Testament. He entered into the grave as he paid fully the price for our sins. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6. Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The burial of Christ confirms and affirms his death is thorough, going, and complete. Joseph of Arimathea plays a small but important part in his burial. All that we know about Joseph of Arimathea is what is told to us in the Gospels here after the death of Christ. Luke tells us that he was a member of the council. In other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest governing body of the Jews, the ones that had plotted the murder of Jesus and had voted to condemn him to death. In verse 51, it tells us that Joseph had not consented to their decision or action. That's interesting because we know from the other Gospels that when they voted, 
that it was a unanimous vote. That means that Joseph must have abstained himself. He must have absented himself from that vote because he did not consent to it. Luke here indicates his character and his faith. He says he was a good and righteous man. And more importantly, he says he was looking for the kingdom of God. That's a shorthand way to speak of those who were looking in faith for the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. He was a rare example among the leadership of the Jews, of the remnant of true believers among the Jews. John tells us explicitly in his gospel that he was a disciple of Jesus, but John adds on, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea did not go, he kept his faith in Christ private. He did not go public with it because he knew that to profess faith in Christ, to become a follower of Christ would cost him everything. It cost him his status as a leader among the Jews. It would cost him family. It would cost him income. It would cost him everything. And so he was a secret disciple of Jesus until Jesus died the way he died. One other detail is Matthew in his gospel tells us that Joseph was rich. He goes to Pilate, shows he had some prestige and honor, some position to be able to go to Pilate and request the body, and Pilate gave him the body to be buried. But he gives him a king's burial. He says here that he was laid in a tomb cut in stone which no one had ever been laid, yet been laid. First of all, Tombs that were cut into the stone were the tombs of rich people. Average Joes couldn't afford that kind of a place for a burial. The fact that not only was it a new, new tomb and no one else had been laid there, usually when they cut those tombs out of the rock, they made them big enough to put many people in there because there was, it took, cost so much to purchase them. So you'd put many bodies in a tomb, but no one had been in this tomb Matthew tells us that this was Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb that he put him in. Look at the honor that the secret disciple of Jesus gives to Christ. It fulfills the prophecy of that great cross prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 9. He was cut off from out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Who could have predicted that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb with the honor due to a king? But realize that by doing this, Joseph of Arimathea was coming clean. He was coming out of the closet. He was going public with his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it at the death of Christ. He did it because... Like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, somehow he believed that death was not going to keep Jesus from establishing his messianic kingdom. That act of burying Christ in his own tomb cost Joseph a lot of money, but much more than that, it cost him his reputation and his status among the Jews. But his faith in Jesus was affirmed and vindicated just two days later when he walked out of that tomb, raised from the dead to reign forever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me go back to our original question. How do we, by faith, 
handle the darkness of the world around us? How do we handle the senseless tragedies like we witnessed in Nashville last Monday? We do it by holding firmly to the truth that we have often proclaimed together in worship in the good times of life and the bad. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. We cling to that truth. We cling to the gospel. We cling to Christ in times like this, knowing that we probably will never know all the whys behind this. The day that those children were gunned down, I very quickly heard that one of those children was the senior pastors of Covenant PCA Church. The senior pastor's daughter, Hallie, was one of those third graders that was gunned down. And you can imagine I felt immediate empathy for him, not only in his grief, as he, I'm sure, asked many of these same questions of God, but I thought especially of putting myself in his shoes. Of, I knew that the world's media was going to be descending upon him quickly as possible to give a response, to explain how he reacts. And I prayed for God to give him wisdom when that time came. But I didn't expect it to come for probably days, probably weeks, maybe even months before he would make any kind of public statement. But the very next day, Tuesday, he came out with a statement, but it was only one sentence. God answered my prayer because it was beautiful. It was powerful. This is what Pastor Scrogg said about his daughter, Hallie. Through tears, we trust that Hallie is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life again. Now that sounds trite in the good times of life. But when someone has senselessly gundered down as a nine-year-old, that's clinging to the gospel. I don't know how people without faith face tragedies like this. I don't know. If you thought that the death of your nine-year-old child was the end of her existence and she was just going to rot in the grave, how do you go on? How do you live? I don't know how people without faith, but I know how people of faith face it. She's in the arms of Jesus and he's going to raise her to life again. That's the only hope that we have. Let me end by reading to you what another PCA pastor, Kevin DeYoung, wrote in his blog a couple of days later. He said, Is it hard to believe in God's sovereignty and goodness after six lives were shot down in an act of diabolical malevolence? Yes. That's why it's called the fight of faith. In times like these, we need the whole Bible with all the depth of Christ's sympathy and all the height of God's providential and loving care. We need to know that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. We need to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to know that the story doesn't end with Joseph in prison or Jonah in the whale or Jesus in the tomb. We need to know that after every cruciform Monday morning, that Sunday is coming. Let's pray. Father, 
we thank you that we live after the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that our faith is a more fully informed faith. But Lord, what a gift of faith you gave to that Roman centurion. What a gift of faith you gave to Joseph of Arimathea. What a gift you gave to the, to the, the apostles who stayed faithful to Christ, believing that somehow he could overcome even death itself. Thank you, Lord, that we have the rest of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, as it has revealed to us that Christ did walk out of that tomb on the third day, and that he has ascended to your right hand, and that he now lives as our, not only Savior, but our Lord. Thank you that that gives us all the hope we need to endure a very difficult life in a fallen world as sinners among other sinners. Father, may his, the message of his death and resurrection go out in a powerful way, especially to our land in these days, but to the entire world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.